Hi everyone, welcome to Training with Casey, where we explore animal training and living our best lives with animals. I'm Joseph Laughlin, producer of this podcast, and now here's your host, Casey Covert. Let's get started. Hi everyone, welcome. Thank you, Joseph, for the introduction. And welcome to Training with Casey. I'm your host, Casey Cover. And the saga of bringing our horses home continues. The, uh, you know, we kind of just thought we have gotten things pretty well settled and there's more work to do. But it feels like, or it felt like, <coughs> excuse me, we got the grazing down and the hay nets and the fencing. And we were really pondering about how to manage the pasture. Well, spoiler alert, all that changed. But before I tell you that story, I have another one. Dave goes out pretty early to feed the horses and he puts the food on to soak the night before and that's to help the horses swallow their food without it getting caught in their throat. If it gets caught in their throat, it's called choke and it's not like they can't breathe, but the stuff will sit there and draw moisture out of their esophagus and become all inflamed, it can really cause a big problem. So if your horse can't clear it, and that has happened, you have to call the vet and he'll use a tube to, you know, give the horse water and push it down into the stomach. And of course, he has to be careful not to get that into the lungs. It's scary. Uh, It happened once to Sarah, and I was really concerned that she might not make it through it. But actually, the vet had her up and about in a matter of minutes. In fact, she was actually got up on her own before he got there, and then he just made sure she was okay. So we take the food out and we soak it after we finish one meal. So after they finish dinner, then Dave takes the breakfast out and starts it to soak for the next day. And every night we say goodnight to the horses and check them pretty much last thing before we go to sleep. And everything looked really nice. Weather was beautiful. It's cooler by about 10 degrees than it has been. Light, nice breeze from the southwest. And it, just a beautiful night. Imagine Dave's surprise when he goes out to feed the horses on the next morning. And a fair is not in the paddock. Where is she? She's in our front yard grazing. Thank goodness she did not decide to go into the street, especially because she's blind and she doesn't even know about the ditches or anything else yet. So note to self, we need to teach a fair about the ditches, even though they're not in part of the area that she's normally in. Making myself a note on that. So there were a lot of um, things to worry about because of this. And one of the first things is how that happened. So Dave, you know, got a fair and put her back into her paddock and then retraced the crime scene. And it appears that what had happened is a huge branch fell out of a very healthy looking pecan tree. Now you lose a lot of branches here and there, but this one's different. This is a huge branch and it broke way up by the tree trunk and the only thing we could figure out is either there was a wind singularity because nothing else looked disturbed there wasn't a lot of wind damage 
or there was a bear hanging out in that branch. We've never seen a bear on our property. We know they probably come here. One time we had a bird feeder that weighed about 20, 30 pounds when it was full of grain. Woke up one morning and that had been carried about 20 feet away from its stand, broken in half. And Dave said, oh, those dang raccoons. I said, Dave, it's not raccoons. That's a gang of raccoons or more likely a bear. Anyway, so this huge branch had fallen. But here's the thing. It fell about 75 feet, 100 feet away from where a fair was. And apparently it scared her severely enough that a fair who does not, has never shown any in you know, uh, desire to go over anything, not even a four inch post on the ground, cleared the four foot livestock wire fence. I say cleared it. She did hit the top. She broke the top part of the wire a little bit. She got a small scratch on her leg, nothing really. We just sprayed it with some betadine. But she cleared the whole fence. So Dave went to work to repair it. And when he repaired it, he put a board across the top of it, a small light board, and we're going to paint that yellow to hopefully make the fences as visible as possible. But the fair is pretty much totally blind. And it was nighttime anyway, so what would it help? But we try to be complete. What else happened? Well, as Dave retraced the steps to where he had encountered a bear in the morning, he realized she had eaten all the breakfast. Not just all her breakfast. She ate two entire breakfasts. So now Dave had to put more food on to soak for Sarah because she got no breakfast. And we were really concerned about a fair. You know, would this cause her to get, you know, founder colic laminitis? Because whenever they eat too many carbohydrates, that's always a concern. She didn't look like she was having a problem. She looked just fine. So I immediately looked it up on the internet. What do you do when your horse has eaten two breakfasts? Besides apologize to the horse who has to wait for breakfast. And it said to check the temperature of the horse and check the temperature of the horse's legs to see if there was inflammation starting and, you know, founder coming. Well, fortunately, Affair's legs seemed absolutely fine. So I went through and looked up how much carbohydrates she had gotten in her breakfast. I was so relieved that we don't feed grain. So she had, you know, eaten her hay. So she hadn't eaten any hay for at least a few hours, probably. And she had in her ration two and a half cups of soybean meal, which is about a, a pound, and three cups of alfalfa pellets, and one cup of cool stamps. And the total carbohydrate content for all that was about 585 grams of carbohydrate considerably less than it would have been if she had grains for her breakfast. So when she got to uh, breakfast, she still had less than a thousand grams of carbohydrate, which for horse, isn't that out of the ordinary? She's probably absolutely fine. And indeed, she didn't show any symptoms at all. 
what a relief because we had visions of having to call the vet and, you know, walk around all day long. Instead, we walked around for the morning and we kept her totally off of hay and all food and walked her again in the afternoon. And then she got alfalfa pellets alone for dinner time. And the next day she was back on her regular feed and she's been absolutely fine. So in looking this up and in watching the horses in the last couple of days, I came up with this great idea. So here's what it was. I don't know if you remember me talking about this, but we were grazing Sarah in the garden. And in the garden, we grow a lot of plants that are good for the horses, but you never know if they're going to actually like them. You know, like maybe they'll like the herb dried in their food, but they won't want to eat it raw, etc. We grow catnip, cat mint, lemon thyme, woolly thyme, regular thyme, marjoram, rose, uh, yeah, rosemary, um, oregano, chives, which theoretically are not good for them, dandelions, a lot, raspberries. Um, that's stuff that makes you chamomile, makes you relaxed, right? And we have to watch because a few things in the garden are toxic and like irises, those are not good for horses to eat. Um, elderberry, but they already know about elderberry. Well, anyway, Sarah was in there and she decided she wanted some lamb's quarters which is a wild plant, a native plant from around here, and so delicious. And I love it. And I started growing it. I started out with a plant from the stable, and now we have like six to 10 plants all through the garden. And you pinch off the tender leaves and just cook those in the microwave about a minute, a minute and a half. Add some high-quality butter, a little bit of salt, it is so delicious. It's in the spinach family. Anyway, like owner, like a horse collaborator, Sarah likes the lamb's quarter. So she reached up to grab, eat it, and um, decided to ascend the hoogle bed. And if you don't know, a hoogle bed is made up of a row of logs, which you then drape with compost and soil and cardboard. And then you add more soil. You keep adding more to the top of it, packing it in every year. And we grow a lot of herbs and flowers, like flowers to feed the butterflies. Um, they're right next to our elderberry and our American beautyberry. And... They're kind of like, you know, little ridges, maybe two feet high, two and a half feet high. Sarah went to the top of this. She ate the slams quarters, which is great. I'm delighted for her to do that. What surprised me is she went across the top of the hoogle bed. She ate lamb's quarters from the other side. And then rather than going around it, she came across the top again. Wow, I was really surprised to see that. I thought she would think the footing was, you know, a little flimsy because there's always settling to happen. So that's one of my hesitations with using this. But anyway, um, I recognize that this could be a way to accelerate the top line replacement. Sarah's old enough that um, Dr. Tucker doesn't think that she is very likely to regain her top line, but I think we can do it. I think we can do it. So we're going to try. We're going to just proceed as if that's reasonable thing to do. So you up the protein for the horse and you get plenty of gentle exercise and some climbing and lifting, you know, where they have to lift the legs over obstacles or climb up hills and go down hills. Those are 
um, helpful exercises. But here, I mean, our property grades from three and a half feet above sea level to five and a half feet. We do not have much topography here. In fact, if you look at us on a topography map, we have none as far as we can see. So I thought, gosh, I can make hoogle beds around the windrows, which we already plan to plant with various plants and herbs that would kind of be beneficial for the horses and broaden their um, food. And so I mentioned this on my Facebook page and my friend and colleague, Sarah Roberts, came back and said, had I heard of the tracking systems? And that's what she was going to try with her horses when she got a property. Well, no, I hadn't heard of those. So I immediately looked it up and there's a farrier named Jamie Johnson who spent two or three years studying wild horses in the wild. And he created kind of like an ethogram for them. He um, was instrumental in developing and studying a chart of their activity. And he commented that if you didn't really study it, you might think that the horses walked around randomly every day. But that was not the case at all. They had regular routes that they took. And these routes would take them to points of interest, maybe somewhere where they had a good vantage of seeing the surrounding countryside, places that were relatively secure from cougars, places where they could sleep, places where they could roll in the dust, where they could drink, where they could take a bath, where they could groom one another, where they could eat, you name it. They, you know, found places to do all these things. And they have an agenda just like we do every day. So the organization in a wild horse herd I found very interesting. And there's a lead stallion and he kind of pushes a group forward from behind. And he is the first checkpoint for anybody that's going to interface with the rest of the horse herd. We don't have a lead stallion. So, um, but I have had that experience because I went to visit my friend and colleague, Andy Beck in New Zealand, and he is the author of The White Horse Project. And I got to meet his family group and his stallion bedded me. And that was an amazing experience. The stallion was so polite, considerate, intelligent, thoughtful, and he acted like a diplomat. He came up and you know, made my acquaintance and stiffed my hand and listened to what I had to say. And all of a sudden, he stepped back and a young female horse came forward. And this was the scout mare. And Andy explained that that mare is not the lead mare. She's kind of maybe in training to become a lead mare, but she's more expendable. She doesn't have as much wisdom, experience, or knowledge. So she approved me, and finally the lead mare came up. And the lead mare approved me, and then everybody came up. It was like I was the center of a daisy, and I had all these horse petals surrounding me. It was really cool. And I'll never forget how dignified and thoughtful the horses were. So we don't have a family group. We have two mares. They're not siblings. They're not mother-daughter. They're buddies. And nonetheless, they like to be together. They like to hang out together. So for all intents and purposes, they are a family group now. So with this knowledge of this 
horse ethology where they would come and start a circuit around their territory and check everything out, keep track of the water, all those kinds of things on a daily basis. And Mr. Johnson wrote a book called Paddock Paradise. And it's about keeping horses, boarding horses, supporting our colleague horses in a very naturalistic, healthy way. And he said, you know, it's really a trap to keep horses on pasture. Really? I never thought about it that way. But I had just heard from Dr. Tucker that hay is about 30% sugar. So I presume grasses as well. It's a lot of carbohydrates for horses. And I know, for example, in California, yeah, we had tons of grass, but the grass was only green for the month of April and the very beginning of May. And then it quickly turned champagne gold colored. And so the horse would be eating essentially hay it's standing on the ground, but it's wild grasses or, you know, whatever kind of grasses happen to be growing there. And it's no longer green. So the only grass that was available was hay, essentially. So he the uh, Mr. Johnson proposed that you don't want to keep your horse on a pasture. And not only is it not good for your horse, it's not good for the pasture because the horses will quickly wear paths around it and they'll poop indiscriminately and they won't want to eat the grass that grows where they pooped. And so that grass will get long and rangy and they'll eat the grass right down to the nubbins on the rest of their range. And the only way we were going, going to be able to avoid or manage that would be to make lots of little enclosures that the horses could graze for one, maybe two days then. And then Sarah hasn't been very enlightened about the way she interacts with a fair. She kind of uh, harasses her a fair amount. And so we were thinking about separating the two of them. Well, anyway, what um, Jamie recommends is that you don't keep the horses in a stall or even a paddock or run-in, and you don't keep them on pasture. You claim your pasture back for your own uses, and you make a track around the perimeter of your property. And you wanna make it a strategic width. You wanna make it so the two horses can easily pass together, but you don't wanna make it wide enough that they just think, oh, this is a great place to sleep because you want them to keep moving forward throughout this path. So I mapped it out on um, our little tiny piece and the horses would have about 2,000 feet to walk around, to go completely around our property. But of course, there's nothing to keep them from going again and again and again. And there are ways we can encourage that. And one of the ways is by feeding, instead of feeding breakfast and dinner, to just break the feeding up and present it at various places along this trail. This has another advantage because you can place the hay in such a way that no one horse can control it. I mean, I'm not mentioning any names here, like Sarah trying to keep a fair from getting the hay, but let's say it was like that. Yeah, there's relief in store for a fair, I think. So we can include the run-in and part of the paddock 
And then as we go around, they'll go right by the windrow. And we are now figuring out like, where do we want the fences to be? You put a fence on both sides of this track. And they suggest you put an electric fence on the inside of the circle and a regular permanent fence on the outside. But be aware you might need to or want to change the configuration. So let's take ours. In one corner of our property, we have windrows that go about a third of the way down each side of the pasture. And these are already growing lots of plants on them and we're planting lots of things. They're not ready for the horses to walk up on top of them. They're not filled in with dirt enough, consolidated enough, and the horse could step in and kind of fall through. Not only that, we're a little concerned. What if there's snakes in there? Um, just before, you know, when we were actually putting everything together, you might remember we found a huge copperhead right by the lean to where the animals were going to be staying. So we don't, we think we don't want them climbing around on the windrow yet. So where would we put the fence? Uh, probably just on the inside of it. Then you've got to leave enough room to run your bush hog because if you're not going to let the horses eat right up to the windrow, you've got to still cut that or it will be totally impassable very quickly. As we go around the property, there are other trees that they can go visit. Um, they suggest you harden the path. You don't want the horse walking through spongy dirt and damp grass. So a luxurious meadow is actually not what we want. They want the horse walking on hard dirt, that that's better for their hooves. You got to read this guy's book, Paddock Paradise. And then at another end of the pasture, there's more horse, uh, more trees. And there's other kinds of things to eat. And we could round off the corner so they actually have a place where they could sleep, relax, hang out, you know, just have a change of venue. Then as they go around the back, there's willow trees and willows have uh, benefits for, you know, pain and they're good brows and they have other purposes. There's other plants back there, like a lot of goldenrod, which I'm very excited about. The goldenrod has been so beneficial for the horses. I am absolutely delighted that we have a lot on our property. And we have to protect it from the horses or we won't have any. They love this stuff. So then uh, the next corner is goldenrod area and also the grapevines. And it might be still doing the research. Could they eat the grapes? There won't be very many within reach. And grape leaves are high in tannin, so jury's still out on that. Then they come across a row of evergreens and that sh um, shade. And I'd say it blocks the wind, but in the summertime, they want the wind. And in the wintertime, they're on the wrong side of it. But horses generally seem to like the cold anyway, so that'll work out. There's a swale on that side, and then they're going to come up that uh, side of the pasture in shade. As they get back to the barn, we're going to put in a water feature, and that will be fed from the gutters on the roof. And they had a really interesting suggestion Mr. Johnson had a very interesting suggestion for how to construct a bath for the horses. So of course you could make a pond, which we don't have on this property. And we're hesitant to have a pond because if we don't keep the water circulating 
and treated with mosquito dunks, we're likely to breed all kinds of mosquitoes, which has a lot of, brings a lot of problems. But if we keep the water dripping into this pool, it will fill the regular water trough and overflow. So they suggested that you dig it out like 18 inches to two feet deep. And I'll have to read it again, line it or put clay or uh, depending on your soil, maybe it would be, you know, resistant enough to seepage, put river rock in it and make it so the horses walk on this rock when they're going to drink water. But the area is also big enough and the water gets deep enough, you know, if it works according to plan, that they can lay down and bathe in it. So let's talk about some other features that would be really cool that would be kind of on the same terms or similar terms. So in addition to that water feature, you could have some other water features. You could have a fountain. You could have you know, some buckets of water. You could have a sprinkler that they could go through the water stream. You could um, put hay in nets or on tables or on mats on the ground throughout the walkway. You could have, we have a round pen with a sand bottom. We could let them have access to the round pen where they could go in and roll in the sand. The only problem with that is that I don't want that round pen getting all dirty because then it would be even harder to keep the weeds from growing in. It's laborious to weed that rascal. But uh, maybe make it available at certain times or while you're out there where you could clean up after them right away. In fact, I'm really um, intent on working on that issue further. I don't see why the horses couldn't be litter trained. They don't look like they have any inclination to be litter trained. We'll keep you posted. Okay, what about things like brushes or posts where they could rub against the post to, um, you know, just scratch their skin? Things like, uh, what? I'm trying to think of what we, we used to make these obstacles for the gray seals at the National Zoo. And we take a big sheet of heavy vinyl and split it. So it made fringes. And you know how in some places where they drive, pitch, uh, not pitchforks, the loading, the forklifts, and they can just drive through these doors which are covered by this shredded clear vinyl. What about doing that with the horses? Teaching them to carefully go through things like that, letting them rub on them. Here's another one, uh, car wash brushes. I've seen those put up for cows and the cows loved them. What about a maze? that the horse can work its way through. Or walls, places where all of a sudden they can't see on both sides. Places where people could hide, like in a game of hide and seek. I used to do that a lot with Sarah, and it was really actually great fun. Although she always knew exactly where I was. And I always thought I was gonna surprise her by jumping out all of a sudden. And I would jump out and she would goose me from behind. She was already ahead of me. She was ahead, even though she was behind. So those are some uh, different features. Now here's another one that I've used to prepare dressage horses and eventing horses for their work. They sell these vinyl pools. So it's kind of like, a pool made 
by vinyl covered pillows. And the pillows are arranged in a rectangle. And then the pool is however deep. Yeah, like if the vinyl making the pillow is four inches tall, then your pool is going to be four inches deep. And you just fill that pool with water. And at the end of the day, you can just dump it, let it feed the plants and start over again the next time. You can move them around and arrange them different places. You can have the horses walk over tarps, walk through tires. You could put tires and logs and other things in the pathway so that they have to navigate this. So there's all kinds of different challenges that you can put out there to make it interesting and dynamic. And also increase the animal's resilience and flexibility in how they interact with their environment, as well as increasing their movement. But what about this? We go out into the round pen with our horses and we walk with them. We could go out together a certain amount of the time and work this course, you know, go through this track together and actually do exercises at various places like you would on a park horse. So we can get to certain places and back up around things and turn circles or do serpentines or, you know, ask the horse to get up and down, uh, go to a certain place and brush them. Like we can interact dynamically in this environment. Instead of spending our time taking up and taking down electric fences so the horse can eat all this pasture grass, which apparently isn't in their best interest anyway. Hmm. So what would we do with the land that's in the center of this? Because if we don't keep it trimmed, then the next thing you know, it will be full of little trees again. And then nobody can do anything on it. I mean, the plants grow up so thickly that uh, all you can do is look at it. You know, you can't walk through them or anything. So we could continue to mow it. And we could make an activity area where people could you know, ride their horses. We could put up dressage markers. We could put up um, serpentines or poles or spirals that people could use to ride with. Jolly balls, tether balls. I mean, do you have some ideas? I'd love to hear other ideas. What have you tried that you found really worked? Or, you know, if you hadn't tried it, what occurs to you that might be really interesting? We want to have like different scents from different herbs, different things to eat, different kinds of bugs and butterflies and uh, you know, just a diverse, rich, and enriched habitat. Once I got introduced to this idea, it made such a difference. I had been coming to dread the whole pasture thing. And this idea solves all kinds of problems. So let's just check them off. The first thing is, I don't have to build a pasture. That takes constant care. And if you let it get run down and so forth, it gets taken over by, in our area, buttercups. They're very lovely and very toxic. So when the land gets too much of the wrong you know, pH, too eaten down, that stuff thrives here and it takes over the entire field. Here's another thing, more movement. 
We need the horses to be building muscle and keeping their fitness, moving their blood, avoiding inflammation in their legs. This is a good answer for all of those things. The food isn't as rich, but they are, you know, they're not eating as much food, but they're eating it more throughout the day. And they have something to do to take their mind off of just eating. So I always thought Sarah had a very plush lifestyle at the stable. She had her own stall. And when it got really hot in the summertime, she would stay in during the day, except she never wanted to pretty much. And in the wintertime, she'd stay in at night. And later on, when her best friend was staying in next to her, that was okay. But until her best friend stayed next to her, she really would rather go outside almost all the time and sleep outside in the cold, in the wet, with all the other mares. So here we have a lean-to. We don't even have stalls. And the lean-to is like 16 by 20 feet. Plenty big enough for both horses, but Sarah does not share well with others. And they're kept, the two horses are kind of kept close to each other. So Sarah can harass a fair over and over again if she chooses to. But with this kind of a system, a fair could leave. She could be half a field away from Sarah. And there would be more than one feeding station and a fair could go far enough away that Sarah couldn't manipulate her at the feet. So we're thinking there'd be maybe less agonistic behavior and less stress for a fair because she can just avoid Sarah, but do something interesting and not have to give up her favorite hay or, you know, anything like that. So that's another huge benefit. And then the effect on the feet and the fact that the horses are going to be able to eat salad. Now, one of the things that the jury is out on is, like I said, they suggest that you want a hard path and they prepare the path by like taking a tractor blade and just cutting the grass right off. We're not going to do that. We're just going to let the horses eat the grass along the path. From what we've seen so far, it will not take them long at all to pound the entire path into bare, hard dirt. Now, one of the things they had in uh, Mr. Johnson's book is people would incorporate different footings so maybe they had, you know, the some of their property was on the side of a mountain and they would actually, you know, include some bedrock where the animal could climb up on the bedrock and pick its footing on the side of an incline, which looked pretty interesting, a little more laborious than walking at sea level, but could be fun. Maybe they had different kinds of sand, different kinds of substrate like grasses, um, tumbleweed, gravel, wood shavings. There were all these different kinds of places where the horses could lay down. Now, another thing that we've done in the past with zoo animals is to use things like pumpkins or frozen blocks of ice for enrichment. Uh, it was surprising who all liked pumpkins. Like it wasn't just, you know, horses, pigs, animals that you might think would eat pumpkin anyway. Tigers love pumpkins. They like to attack them and squish them and break them open and eat a surprising amount of them. My German shepherd, Rocky, loves raw pumpkin. He will devour one and 
um, and literally eat it, not just break it up, but actually eat it. So lots of things they could do. Oh, and another thing they suggested is you could um, run different kinds of animals together, like maybe include chickens in the horse's range or goats or sheep. That's another layer of complexity. We're not ready to do that now, but interesting idea for the future. Okay, so let's just summarize what the possibilities are. Okay, first of all, if the branch broke off of the pecan tree and it scared a fair, she would already know where she could go to move away from that without jumping over the fence and outside of her paddock. So if we teach her, look, you can retreat in this direction, she might really appreciate that and take advantage of it and not break the fence and risk her own life at the same time. So you have more places for the animals to go. Because of the way it's laid out, it encourages the animal to move through this system repeatedly. Oh, and Oakland um, Zoo did this for their elephants like 20 years ago. I was talking to them about this. And elephants like to eat at night as well as during the day. And these zoo people were so dedicated. They had five acres for these elephants. And they set out these trails. And they would go put food and enrichment items like browse, pumpkins, balls, whatever, like five times a day. And they scanned from like seven o'clock in the morning till one o'clock in the morning. It was literally around the clock. But they found that even though it was only a five acre lot, the elephants were walking an average of over five miles a day. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. They got in their 10,000 steps, right? Okay, so um, we can vary the food. We can distribute the food. We can take off the, the uh, stress, perhaps. We can have all these different features, different footings, different obstacles, water, um, walls. We can have other kinds of enrichment, scents, plants, things that we can do together, hides for playing hide and seek, uh, blocks so that they can't see all the other horses across the entire you know, area. And you could even use trees strategically for that. There's a lot of possibilities with this idea. And as I said before, we could, we would also have the round pen to use however we wanted to. And we could use the center of this area for other kinds of course related activities and just totally not worry about having a pasture. You know, having a pasture is a lot of mowing. Oh yeah, we'll probably still have to do that. Okay, guys, did, I'm sorry if I meandered tonight, but it's just a lot of possibilities. It's kind of fun to just consider them all. All right, so that's episode nine of Bringing the Horses Home. And fortunately, when the branch broke, and affair sprang out. She didn't injure herself seriously. And then we have the rich possibilities of making a track for our horses to increase their activity and just make their lives better and make our lives better. We can go out there and play with them. Hey, thank you so much for joining me. Have a wonderful time with your animals and I always appreciate it so much when you comment or share and share your ideas. I mean, I really appreciate when you share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. 
but also share your ideas and experiences. I would really love to know, and I know a lot of you have been really creative and are very experienced in your work with animals. I'd love to hear what you're up to. Thank you, everybody. Take care, and we'll see you next time. Good night. Hey, fans. Are you enjoying training with Casey? Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Casey Covert on YouTube. That is youtube.com forward slash C slash Casey Cover. Also, give the podcast a like, share, and comment. Thanks for joining us. Come back for more news and views on animal training and living with animals. Stay at the top of the pack with Casey. This is Joseph Laughlin, producer of Training with Casey. See you next time.